The book of Romans went through a fairly lengthy introduction and overview of the book last week, so uh, I'm not going to belabor much of that this morning. Uh, we ended by looking at the first seven verses, which is what we're going to actually study this morning. Uh, read through that without any commentary, and, and today we're going to unpack those. So uh, without uh, any more time uh, on an introduction, let's just get into it. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. One morning last week, I woke up and half of this verse was just stuck in my mind. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called. Called. Not appointed. Not invited. Called. So he begins this letter with a typical greeting. Now, in all of his letters, he would start with, uh, a salutation with who he was and then uh, go into some of his credentials and all of that. But this particular letter is by far the longest introduction, salutation of any of Paul's letters. Uh, the first word here, Paul, in all of his letters, and it was typical in the first century in, in those cultures, they wrote letters, they did, uh, they communicated on parchments, on scrolls. And so here you have what we kind of distilled down to being 16 chapters, being on a single scroll. And, and how awkward would it be to have to unfurl that to get to the end as we do and see, oh, this is from Paul. So the equivalent of a return address is why they would use the first word of the letter would be the one whose letter it was. The exception to that being the book of Hebrews, where it starts with God. Um, yes, we believe that this letter is inspired, that it is inspired scripture. It is from God. It is part of the word of God or the words of God. God's speech to us is what we look at as the Bible. His word is inspired. So in, in this first letter, he essentially asserts who it is that's writing. There's a little dispute about that. Now, he wrote this letter long before he actually went to Rome. Uh, as we mentioned last week, he wanted to visit there, and, and he had longed to be with them. Uh, and then when he wrote this, it was, uh, of course, he dictated it to a, a guy by the name of Gaius, and and he was actually the writer. Uh, and he sent this by a woman by the name of Phoebe to Rome. She was a, a woman. He, I love the way she's described in chapter 16. She was a servant of God from a sister church in Sincrea, uh, which is a, a city that was about five miles to the southeast of Corinth. Remember now, Corinth is uh, in southern Greece, uh, about 50 miles to the west of Athens. So uh, he writes this letter from Corinth, and he's writing to the church at Rome. Uh, he wrote this while he was on his second missionary journey. Uh, and it, as I mentioned, in Corinth, he would know that Corinth was a city. Uh, Corinth was notorious. <laughs> they were known for being a cesspool of sin. 
that because all of the, the we're the Greek culture, the pantheon of gods, all of the the immorality that went on there, and the things that he addresses in First Corinthians, commonplace in Corinth, and we see as when he writes later in this chapter, in chapter one eighteen through three nineteen. That he, he, it, he it, that's a very dark, bleak section of this letter, and he talks about the utter depravity of mankind under sin. Uh, and all he had to do to see the worst in humanity was go outside of his door while he was at Corinth uh, and look around and see the debauchery that he writes about here. It was a vivid visual reminder. I remember reading one time, uh, the first time I, I taught this book years ago. Uh, a guy by the name of Chuck Swindoll, many of you have heard of him, he's on the radio and all. Uh, he, he referred to uh, First and Second Corinthians as First and Second Californians. <laughs> and being from uh, there, it's a nice place to be from, uh, I relate. Now here, Paul's self-identification in verse 1 is really important. He first talks about himself as a bond slave of Christ. And then he says that he's called as an apostle. That's the way it works, folks. It's, it's always been this way. It's who you are in Christ, which is what is important in your life. Out of that flows what you do for Christ. It's never the other way around. It, it, it's, that's why works follow. James says, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Show me who you are in Christ, and I'll show you what I do for Christ. Uh, and I, I caution people, and, and I caution because we can fall into thinking what I do for him is a sign of my maturity. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. We were talking in our, our men's Digging Deeper group last Tuesday night about spiritual maturity, and, and that we can actually cover up a weak walk with the Lord, or a, even a non-existent relationship with the Lord, with service. And sort of get into an attitude of, look at what I'm doing for God. Look at this. And, and, and think that that translates to maturity. It doesn't. Fruitful service always flows from the abundance of the relationship that we have with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul mentions this uh, in verses 15 and 16. He talks about speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So he talks about we grow up in him, that we nurture the relationship that we have with him. And from that, every part does its share. So when he talks here also, he talks about being a bondservant. Uh, in verse 1. Now, that's softened by the translators, translating this from Greek, Koine Greek, street Greek, into English. Uh, and essentially what it is is a bond slave. <laughs> it's, it, it's, 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 when we think of a servant, you know, I think of the butler with the towel over his arm and you hear dinner, sir, and all that. That's a servant. What he's talking about here is somebody who's a slave, somebody who is owned, somebody who is under the dictates of another. Now, there's a good example of servants in God's word. In Luke chapter 15, the, the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal 
Um, you know, he takes his father's inheritance. He goes off to a far country and he squanders it on fast living and fast women and all of that. And, and that when he gets to the end of himself there, he, he starts thinking, you know, maybe I had it, didn't have it so bad at home with dad. So he heads back. While he's heading back, he's reciting what he's going to tell his father in his head. And he's saying, I'm going to get there. I'm going to tell him, look, I'm no worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, that's not a doulos. The Greek word here for a bond slave is doulos. That's not what's, what the son is talking about there. The hired servant in that day, that would be like if we have a harvest and we're going to need to get all the crops in from the field, we hire servants. And that's what he's talking about. The reason why he makes that distinction, he didn't say, make me like one of your bond slaves, father. He says, make me like a hired servant, is the master has no obligation to the hired servant. Harvest is done, you're gone. As opposed to a bond slave, there's a mutual relationship there. There's an obligation on both ends. That's what a doulos is. It expresses the condition of the one who has a master or who is in control of another. Now, this imagery comes out of the book of Exodus where God gives instruction that if a Jewish man, if he was broke, if he's in debt and he can't pay off his debt, that he could literally sell himself into slavery to cover the debt. It was being an indentured slave or a slave under contract. All right. So that's what a bond slave is, that Instead of being able to pay off his debt, he would become this person's slave. And it was always for a period of time. It could never be for longer than six years. God put a limit on it. He didn't want these people to be taken advantage of. He said, after that, your debt is cleared. That's why in Colossians, he says he's taken the certificate of debt that was against us. And he has taken it out of the way. He has paid the debt. That's part of the imagery that's there in the New Testament. In Exodus, this guy could become a slave to his master for six years, up to six years. But at the end of that six years, if the slave is of a mind, he says, you know, I've never had it so good. I love my master. And you know what? He loves me. And, And we have, this is a really good thing. I've never lived so well as the time that I've had here these years with my master. I don't want this to stop. God made provision for that, that he would come to his master and he'd say, I don't want to be released. I don't want to be taken. I don't want to go back to my old life. There's nothing there compared with what I have here. So then he would be, and again, the prescription in the Old Testament, he'd be taken to the gates of the city. We looked at that when we were in the book of Ruth, where that's where all the legal transactions are done because there are witnesses, the elders of the city and all of that. The gates of the city, these were walled cities in that culture. And he would be taken as a testimony in front of all. And they would take his ear and they would put it up against a wooden doorpost and they would drive, I always cringe when I think about this, they would drive an awl through his ear, a punch. Punch a hole in his ear and they'd put a ring in it and that would signify that this guy was now his master's property. On purpose, voluntarily. There were two things about becoming a doulos in that culture. One, is it was a voluntary thing. The slave could go, but he chose to stay. The second is there was no longer a time limit as there were with the six years. This is permanent. This was becoming an indentured slave to this master for life. 
That's what Paul is communicating here when he says, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. I'm a bond slave. He's saying, listen, I've made this decision to serve him. Don't pity me. I've done it of my own accord. This is a choice. I choose to be identified as his slave. I have given up my rights to myself. I belong to him. And I'm in this for the long haul. Considering that, think about Paul. He's thinking, I couldn't serve a greater master. I couldn't serve a better, more kind, more fair master than Jesus himself. And I understand because I understand the nature of the gospel that to be his bond slave is actually to be free. And that's where Paul is orienting as he's calling himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He said, I've committed myself to his purposes all the days of my life. The next thing he says here is he says, I'm called as an apostle. It says called to be. Notice that's in italics. Essentially, it's saying I'm called an apostle. Not invited, as I mentioned earlier. Not appointed or not not invited. Not not somehow he signed up for this, but he is appointed by God as an apostle. In, I mentioned briefly last week in the introduction to this letter that it, Paul defended his apostleship in the book of Galatians. Now there in Galatians 1, 13 to 16, read, he says, For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. As I mentioned last week, he was one bad dude. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But, and there's that wonderful pivotal word, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, he revealed his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It's not who I am, is what Paul's saying but who he is. It's not what I do. It's what he's done. He says, when it pleased God, he separated me and he called me through his grace, not based on me. Grace is unmerited favor. It's saying, I am not loving you because you're all that lovable. And you might be, you might not be. It's saying, I am loving you because that's a choice that I make. That's the love that God has for us talk about that as we get towards the end of the message today. So as an apostle, he's essentially an emissary. He's a direct representative of Christ. Now there are some aspects of apostolic ministry that don't translate to the church commonly today. I believe that some do. I mean, there are some that make the claim that the gifts of the spirit, especially the sign gifts, the ones that are visible died with the apostles. I don't believe that. I think the gifts are alive today. They're, they're in place today. However, I do believe that they had some powers as apostles, some apostolic authority that did not extend beyond the apostolic age. For instance, when you see Peter on the steps of the temple with the guy that was, that was crippled and he heals the guy at will. These guys had the ability to do that. Why? Because they were demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ by signs and wonders and various miracles, like we're told in the book of Acts, that he was attested to us that way. That doesn't generally happen now. Um, 
We, we prayed for Chuck Porter before we got started for our first service this morning uh, because I know that his, his, his hip is really bothering him. He came in looking like he was in pain and all of that, and that came to me. So we got a couple guys up here, and we anointed him with oil. Actually, all we could find was butter. Um, <laughs> so we anointed him. Uh, hey, it wasn't as bad as, you know, one time I was at a church picnic, and my buddy Brad, who's now, he's a senior pastor at Calvary Gridley down there now, uh, he wanted to anoint me with oil. We didn't have any oil. We're out at the park. And so he goes and he lifts up the hood of his car. And I was like, oh, thanks, Brad. I got this dirty black smear on my forehead. He enjoyed every minute of it. At any rate, we, we anointed Chuck with oil because being obedient to the word of God, to, is any among you sick? Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But the point is, an apostle is a direct representative of Christ. And some of the power that they had died off with them. Much of it remains today. So it's not called apostolic authority. It's the authority we have as believers. Remember when Jesus in Matthew 16, he told his guys, he, uh, he, he says, look, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. You're going to be stewards of my house. That's what that whole thing. When, when the master gave the keys to his servants, they, they were stewards of all that he possessed. And he, he knew that he gave him the keys anyway. He knew that, that these guys, man, if they could mess it up, they would. But that wasn't what it was about. It was about who he is, not who they are. He gives them the keys and he says, whatever you bind in heaven will already have been bound on earth. Whatever you loose or loose on earth will already be loosed in heaven. And whatever you bind in heaven will already have been bound on earth. He gives them authority. That's authority that translates to us. They had it as apostles, but we still have authority as believers, the binding and loosing as stewards of our father's house. So if, I've often asked, and it's a trick question, so I'm not going to pull it on. You have often asked people, who was the greatest of the apostles? <laughs> and Hebrews chapter 3 tells us, Hebrews 3, 1, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Jesus was himself, he was the greatest of the apostles. Now, yes, he represented himself, but he also told them, he said, hey, show us the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, I am a direct representation of God to you. So Jesus represented the Father to us, and what better representative than one who is co-equal in all ways with the Father? And in the same way, that's so he had apostolic an apostolic ministry in that sense. These guys, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles in the first century, represented Christ. And they were direct representatives of Christ to the church. Hebrews 1, uh, talking about, uh, or Hebrews 3, he says... Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest, high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, as a direct representative of God. Now, if we consider that, we think about, all right, what does the Bible tell us about that? In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature, that he's the radiance or the outshining of the nature of God. What greater apostle could we have? Now, there's a, a principle in Bible study called the, the principle of first mention. And I want to go there because this isn't a concept that came out just in the, in the New Testament. 
We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. Now, the, the Hebrew term there was shaliah. And what it means is one who was sent or an emissary. He would be a legal agent to represent, to stand in the place of his master. In other words, this servant, and, and Abraham gave him some specific details too. He said, don't you go get one of the locals to marry my son. You know, because this guy, he could take a shortcut. He says, no, I don't want you to do that. And he said, when you go and you find a wife, make sure it's from among the country where I came from and, and all of that. Getting into the whole story. But the point is, is that he gave this guy authority. He had delegated authority from Abraham to go and to legally represent him in finding a wife for Isaac. So the Shalaya is a Hebrew term and it's comparable to the Greek word apostolos, from which we get the English apostle. It's not just one who is sent, but it's one who is sent with authority. They have the authority of the one sending them. When these guys were commissioned as apostles, they were given divine authority to carry out their ministry, to carry out their mission. Paul says, I recognize God's calling on my life, called to be an apostle. Also in verse 1, we see the first description that Paul gives of the gospel. He calls it the gospel of God. Literally, the good news or the great news of God. That's what gospel means. Good news means great news in the context here. In light of our sinful condition, God has provided a way for you and I. That's the the whole message of the gospel is that while we were still dead in our sins, that Jesus died for us. That he went to that cross for you, for me. That he knew that there was no way. We're talking about righteousness here in the book of Romans. And as I mentioned last week, the religious leaders thought they could manufacture their own and it would never be enough. Jesus said, it's got to be more than that. Your righteousness has to be imputed. It has to come from me on the basis of faith. That's the heart of the gospel. I simply believe it. God accomplishes it. My salvation is secure. We'll talk about that. We'll look at a couple of verses that relate to that in a bit. But that's the way that God has provided. It's the gospel of God. He says, I'm separated unto the gospel of God. And now he may be referring, there's a couple of different views on this when he says, I'm separated. Uh, the first is that, as you may know, Paul had been a member of the Pharisees party, the party of the Pharisees. And, and they were known as separatists. And so in that culture, before he was separated to the service of his own sect, because that's what they did, they separated off, very exclusive bunch. Now, it it could be a wordplay that he's doing, I've separated then as a Pharisee, now I'm separated to the gospel of God. Speaking of that, as we look at this letter in general, the word God occurs 153 times in the book of Romans. This is a book about God. This is a letter that's talking about God. Um, That's an average of once every 46 words. Central to our understanding. He's talking about the work of God on man's behalf. While we were helpless, that Christ died for us. 
The word God is used more frequently here than in any other New Testament book. I mean, just reinforcing the reality that as much as Romans deals with major themes, major doctrines in Christianity, it is, in its essence, a book about God. So when Paul's talking about being separated, I got to thinking about, I was thinking about back, and I mentioned last week his conversion there on the road to Damascus when, you know, the light shone about him, he's knocked off his horse and he hears that voice, you know, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And and he says, who who is that that's speaking to me, Lord? And he says, it is Jesus, it's me, Jesus. You're finding it pretty hard to kick against the goats. And I don't believe that, that Jesus was harsh with Paul then. I believe that he was appealing to him and saying, you know, you can keep kicking, but you're called. And he was called of God. In Acts chapter 9, we see that after he got up and God said, go into the city, go ahead and finish going into the city. You're not going to be arresting any Christians on this trip. But go into the city. I've I've got somebody that I want you to, to deal with there. Uh, and, and at the same time, God has got a guy named Ananias and he's saying, I want you to go and meet with this guy, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. It wasn't Paul at that point. Still had his Hebrew name, Saul. And Ananias is arguing with God. He's saying, but God, you, do you really, do you understand? You know how many people have told me about this creepy guy? I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, look, you know what? You want me to talk to him? Like he's saying, are you kidding me? And the Lord said to him in Acts 9.15, he says, go. (laughs) Have you ever had an argument with God? I found that it's not real productive. Um, (laughs) And God's answer at the end of it was, go. That's it. Again, he's the boss. He says to go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings, and the children of Israel. He is a chosen vessel. Paul did not choose apostleship. He was chosen for it. Got to be clear on that. This is something that he was commissioned by God to do. Now, another look at this if you remember, right before Paul's first missionary journey, he had gone up to Antioch, uh, and he was there with a bunch of the believers there. They had sent a guy by the name of Barnabas, who would become Paul's partner in ministry for years. Uh, they would have a falling out and all of that, but, but Paul and Barnabas would be put together, and where God commissioned them together was at Antioch. And in Acts 13, 2, Uh, It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted there at Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we see here in verse one, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated the gospel of God, that he's called a bondslave of Jesus. He's called as an apostle. He separated the gospel to bear the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to kings and to the children of Israel, verse two, which he, God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is saying here, I didn't cook this thing up. Now you got to remember the culture that they're in that, I mean, 
Corinth is only, it's only about 50 miles from Athens, which was the cultural, spiritual center of the empire. Yeah, Rome was the capital, but, but Athens, that's where all the culture came from. That was where, remember when he, in Acts chapter 17, he goes, he's in Athens, he goes up to Mars Hill, which is a hill in the city. He goes up, he sees a statue to the unknown God there on his way, and he goes up and he visits a group uh, in a place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was where the Stoics and the philosophers were, and it's where they heard, and use air quotes, every new thing. Paul is essentially saying here, this is not a new thing. This isn't an empty philosophy. This isn't something that I cooked up. This is something that God promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not new. This is new to you, but it's not new. The scriptures promised a new way in which man would relate to God. I think about Jeremiah 31, 31. It's not in my notes. This is free. Um, but it, where he's, God says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And, and, and it won't be like the old one, which they broke, by the way. But, I'll, uh, but one man will say to another, know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, because I will write my law on their hearts. It won't be on tablets of stone. It'll be on the tablets of human hearts. In Hebrews chapter one, we're told that God at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In other words, he gave them pieces and parts of divine revelation. But now has in these last days spoken to us by his son, the complete revelation of God. So the scriptures promise this new way in relating to God. They looked forward to it from the old covenant. There are a ton of places. Whenever Paul would show up in a city, folks, he would go straight to the synagogue and we're told that he would start, he would begin to reason with the people in that city from the scriptures. What were the scriptures in that day? The Old Testament. They didn't have what we have here. That was kind of in the works. And so he would begin to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament. And so this is something he's saying, look, this isn't new material. This is stuff that has been around for a long time. Now let me illuminate it to you. In Hebrews 10, 7, the, the, the writer there, and I'm not saying it was Paul. <clears throat> the writer there is quoting Psalm 40, verse 7. It says, then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book, in the scroll of the book. It's written of me speaking prophetically of Christ in the Old Testament to do your will, O God. Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 39, he's squaring off with the religious creeps. Yeah, that's what I call them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Greek word is creepios. Um, no, it's not. But he's squaring off with the religious leaders of his day who were just always setting their jaws against him. And he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life. And then he says this, he says, these are they which testify of me. Jesus is telling them that the truth of God can be plumbed from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, the scriptures that they had in that day. The other thing that, about this is the scriptures foreshadowed the gospel. We looked at, we were in the book of Ruth, we were looking at shadows and types. There are way more than we could go into here. We could spend the next several messages talking about that. But one of the shadows, one of the primary shadows of the gospel 
is in Exodus chapter 6, in verses 6 through 8, where God is, is telling, he's given Moses instruction on what he's to tell the children of Israel. He says, therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll rescue you from their bondage and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Now, let me reread that with some gospel overtones because that's the gospel all the way back in Exodus before Israel was even brought into the land. God is promising these people a whole list of things. We know that Egypt is a type for the world. It's a shadow in the Old Testament for the world and all the worldly system and practices and all that. So he's saying, I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the world. That's exactly what Christ does for us. I'll rescue you from its bondage and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah himself talking about Christ prophetically 600 years before he was born says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Prophetically again, looking to Christ. He says, you'll know that I'm the Lord who God who brings you out from under the burdens of the world. I'll bring you into the land. But the land symbolically, again, the land is a shadow for the promises and the life of God that he gives to us, to his people. And as we look at that and we see that, again, it's a shadow, it's a type for the Christian life to go into the land is to go into and inherit and, and inhabit the life and the promises of God. So he says, I'll bring you into the promises and life, which I, I swore to give to those who went before you. And I'll give it to you. It will be a gift. We know that the grace of God is a gift. That salvation is a gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something you merit. It's not something you can do enough push-ups or earn enough kissy points or whatever it is. It's something that God says, I'm doing it because of who I am. Not because of who you are. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he, he's, he's schooling the Christian believers there because people were coming in and trying to pervert the gospel and saying, you know, yeah, sure, you can, you gotta, you're saved by grace, but now you've got to start doing these things that are according to the law of Moses. And he says, let no one judge you in regard to food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbaths. Those are all part of the old covenant. They're all part of what was foreshadowed that's fulfilled. He says, those are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So how do you want to live? You want to live with shadows or the substance? You want to live according to your work or God's work that's accomplished on your behalf? You want to live a religious life or do you want the, the richness of a relationship based in love and grace? Do you want to live your life showing God that you can live by a list of rules? Or do you want to live in grace? God's unmerited favor poured out on you, on me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, The law, the old covenant was, of God was a shadow of the good things to come. 
What good things? The gospel of Christ. Verse 3. Concerning his son Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So from verse 1, this is all one statement. He's saying, look, this is the gospel of God and it's concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's very significant. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ is not his first, middle and last name. What he's talking about is who he is. The, the essence of the relationship is that he is Lord. In, in Paul states his position as a doulos and now he's stating Jesus's position as Lord. Both sides. Remember, I talked about in that equation with the doulos, I love my master. I don't want to leave. Don't release me. The master has to agree with that. And he not only agrees with it, he endorses it. He jumps in. And he says, look, now you're not your own. You were bought with a price. I am Lord. How often I have heard Christians use the term Lord and not really mean it. If he's Lord, he owns you. If he's Lord, you don't have a right to your life. If he's Lord, you have a loving relationship with a loving master who is your master. And you want your life to reflect that. He states his position as a doulos, as a bond slave, implying Jesus is his master. In verse 3 here, he states it plainly our Lord. Now he wanted to show them also that the incarnation of Christ had its origin in the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's saying, look, this was promised before. It was promised from long ago. And the prophecies there, that's why he talks about the seed of David according to the flesh. He's reinforcing what he has said about the gospel is not new. It's something that was revealed in pieces and in parts in portions in the Old Testament. And he uses as an example that Jesus was born according to the seed of David. We talked about that. Remember when we wrapped up the book of Ruth, we talked about how there was Boaz and then there was Obed and there was Jesse and there was David. And then on down through the lineage to Jesus himself. Jesus is of the seed of David. So when he talks about that, according to the flesh, he's talking about the humanity of Christ. That's the human side. Now, in verse four, he gets into the spiritual side. He talks about the fact that he resurrected and only one in human history has been able to do that. And that is God, the son and the divinity of Christ is seen here. In verse four, he said, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Hebrews nine tells us that Jesus had through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God at the cross. God the Father then acted in power and glory and raised him from the dead. Christ was thus irresistibly, eternally declared to be the son of God. Now, I want to make a note on that. Uh, There's some heresy out there that I don't want to not tag this. I mean, most of you are aware of this. But Jesus didn't change in essence. In other words, he wasn't, he wasn't not the son of God until he was declared the son of God. That's not what's being said here. He has always been the son of God, God the son. The father declared him to be the son of God through his resurrection. As we're seeing here, 
I'll explain this. When God raised Jesus up, it was obviously, it wasn't an ordinary event. It's not like, well, Tuesday we're going to have another one. You know, No, this is the, a one-time deal. The resurrection was a public attestation to the truth of Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. It attested to the fact that death couldn't hold him. God wouldn't sanction the doings and doctrines of an imposter. He's saying this is the authentic. He's the authentic one. He is the one. This is the one that God raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God. When therefore the Father raised Jesus up, he by this act showed the truth of his claims that he indeed was the Son of God. Interesting too, always when Jesus spoke of his own death, when he prophesied of his own death, he always included the fact that he would rise again from the dead. Now, when Paul says, according to the spirit of holiness here, he could have said the Holy Spirit, but I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I don't think it fits the context as well as looking at it a little bit differently. If that's what he meant, he would have said the Holy Spirit. Probably, though, what he was referring to was the holy nature of Jesus. Remember, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-equal in all of their attributes. Jesus shared the same holiness as the Father possesses, the same holiness as the Holy Spirit as well. It's talking about Jesus' own holy nature. His nature was so holy that death couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead, verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Now, I want to make a correction here. I think that that is a poor translation. And I did a a lot of research on this because I'm not in the habit of changing the Bible. (laughs) We're not going to do that. Every other major translation, the New American Standard, the English Standard, the Revised Standard, the Holman Christian Standard, all of them render this the obedience of faith. And that makes sense. So he says, through him we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all nations for his name. Now, when he says, he uses the word we here, and you think, okay, who's we? This isn't like in 1 Thessalonians where Paul begins that letter. He doesn't begin it with Paul like he did here, singular. He begins it with Paul and Silvanus, who's Silas, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica. He uses all three. No, he doesn't have a group. This isn't a group of guys writing here. This is him. The Greek word, it's one Greek word for those three words we have received, and it's lambano, and it's written in the first person plural. What does that mean? It means he's speaking for himself. Kind of like if I say, uh, if I might have literally decided as the pastor of the church, I'm going to schedule a picnic in the parking lot, I would tell you we're going to have a picnic. Kind of the same deal. It's just the way it's worded. I don't believe he's going anywhere with it. The other thing about this, though, is Paul here, when he says that uh, through him we receive grace and apostleship, I believe that he is establishing his authority. He's establishing apostolic authority. Not because he's saying, oh, I'm all that and more. I'm an apostle and you're not. No, but he had been given a commission to carry out. And, and in doing so, he needed to establish his authority as an apostle in order to get these people to listen and to pay attention to what he's got to say. And he's going to say a lot 
in this letter. So from the beginning, he begins to lay out, I've received by his grace, this apostleship. It reminded me of when, <laughs> when I was a Sunday school teacher, oh, I don't know, for about 10 years, I taught eight to 10 year olds, loved it. One of my favorite ministries of all time, still think about it very fondly. I know many of the families at my old church, the Calvary Chapel in California, Northern California, where I was, uh, many of my students have families, they have kids now that are <laughs> going through the whole deal and and uh, it's just, it was a, a wonderful time. Well, my first Sunday at teaching Sunday school, I'd gone to my buddy, who's now the senior pastor. We were both assistant pastors together at the time. I said, Brad, do I really have to use your curriculum? And he said, no, nah, no, nah, that's mainly for moms that aren't, you know, teaching a lot and all of that, you know, for our volunteers. And I said, all right, good. So my first Sunday, I went in. I, the first thing I did is I took the table out and I took all the chairs out put them in the empty, the storage room next door. And some of the people are like, what are you doing? And it was like, I don't, I'm not going to talk down. I want to be on the same level. And we all sat down on the carpet. And I would teach these kids for 45 minutes and I would teach them the same lesson I would give the adults, but I would use kid applications. You know, there's, there's only enough cereal left for one person and who's going to get it, you or your brother or sister, that kind of thing, you know, instead of the, the more adult applications. Anyway, what I always did in this classroom was I would establish my authority the very first thing. As I'm down on the floor with him, I don't want him to think this is playtime with John. We're going somewhere with this. And that last 10 minutes, I would stand up and I'd grab a, a marker and I would get to the whiteboard and I would start driving home the lesson that I'd been working into our time together at the end of the lesson. Well, at the very beginning of the lesson, I would say, look, who remembers my one stinking little rule? And the kids would all go, oh, oh, oh. You know how kids, they get all excited. It's like, I remember, I know, I know. And I didn't ever, even though there was turnover in the class, there was always kids that had been there before and knew what my one stinking little rule was. And it was, you could, and I'd say, well, who knows? And I'd call on a kid. They'd say, uh, you can space out if you want to, but don't you dare take anybody with you. That was my one rule. It covered everything. <laughs> and so... After that, I'd say, who knows what happens if you break my one stinking little rule? And they don't, ooh, 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 and raise it. And they say, well, you get the wood grain treatment, which means in that classroom, we had wainscoting around the edges of the room. And so if I had them go stand in the corner, we called it the wood grain treatment. They'd get to stare at the wood grain up close because that's how the room was wrapped. At any rate, my point is, is that I established my authority first so that they would listen, so that they would get what I wanted to teach them. In, in, a, in a grown-up way, 2,000 years ago, Paul is doing that here. He's establishing his authority. He's saying, listen, I've received this grace, this apostleship, and I've got some things I want to say to you. Now listen up. Pay attention. This is important. I've received as a grace from God this ministry, this apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith to the nations. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Here's the difference. The law of Moses, the old covenant, the old way that God related to man. It lays down what a man must do. The gospel lays down what God has done. We either believe it or we don't. As I've mentioned many times before, you will always act on what you believe. 
universal principle, you will always, always, always act on what you believe. When we do believe, as believers, that's why we're called believers. When we do believe, our heart's desire becomes, now that I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, now that my sins have been forgiven, now that I am counted as His, now that I am His bond slave, now that I understand that my life I gave up my rights to and now I belong to Him. My heart's desire in response to the grace that I've been given, in response to the unmerited favor that's been poured out on my life, as I mentioned, without measure, is I want to live a life that's pleasing in his sight. I want to live a life out in the open. I want to be that person that John talks about in First John where he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. Am I in process? Yes. Do I always get it right? Amen to that. Do I always get it right? No. But that's the desire of my heart, the obedience of faith. I believe this stuff. I actually believe that this stuff is real. I believe that the kingdom of God is the real world and this life is the fishbowl. What I mean by that, it's like if you take a fishbowl and you put a goldfish in it, you set it in the middle of the room and, and we're told that we see through the glass dimly. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says, but then we'll see face to face. It's like if you were that fish in that fishbowl, you would see a, a dim reflection or a dim representation of reality, but you're not there yet. That's this life. And when we're there, we will know as we're now known, then face to face, there won't be any fishbowl in the room. We'll be in the room. That's the real realm. Heaven is the real realm. This life, we're told, it's like a mist. It's a vapor. It appears for a moment and it's gone. What do you do with your life? In the meantime, Romans chapter 10, talking about the obedience of faith, He says that if you confessed with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? That'll get you to heaven. That'll get you in. That'll get you eternal life. He says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's it. It's the obedience of faith. You believe it. It's done. Now he will work in your life. We'll look at that when we get to Romans chapter 8 where he says he's working all things to, for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And Romans eight twenty nine says, and that his purpose is to conform you to the image of his son. Yeah, we'll get to all that. But the minimum entry requirements for heaven, the minimum entry requirements for the body of Christ, for being part of his, for belonging to him, it's the obedience of faith. You believe it, that settles it. You're in. Pretty simple, huh? It's so simple. Many miss it. Oh, that churchy stuff those people are into. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. Because the word of God itself declares that the, the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. You're not going to get it. You, can't, you cannot get it outside of True faith. You, you have to believe it. And once you do, man, it's like the doors get unlocked and things just make sense. Until that point, you may sit and mock and think what a waste of time. So simple. 
people miss it. He made it simple. Why? I know me, and I know some of you. It had to be simple. We're sheep. They're not known for being real smart. And I'm not putting people down. I'm just saying that that we, compared to the omnipotence and the omnipresence and the omniscience of God, we don't get much, but he has made sure that we get enough. Praise God. Verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. There's that word again. He says, you are the called of Jesus. Now, we don't know, as I mentioned last week, Paul didn't plant this church He had never been to this church. He had never been to Rome. We'll look at next week where he says, I long to be with you. Man, I just got to be with you. But in the meantime, we don't know. He didn't start it, but he was really familiar with a lot of people that were there. We'll look at when we get to chapter 16, there are 26 people in chapter 16 that he names by name. He doesn't say, hey, just say hi to the Jones. He says, and he goes down the list. There was a lot of movement within the empire. We looked at Priscilla and Aquila last week. We looked at, you know, Paul meets them in Corinth and then he takes off with them. They go to Ephesus. They stay when he leaves Ephesus and he goes off to do his other missionary stuff. He comes back to Ephesus. They end up being sent to Rome because when he's writing to Rome here, he's writing to them. He's saying, greet them. So we know that people were moving around and he made a lot of acquaintances. But essentially, how did the church in Rome start? We don't know. But I do know that God's word tells us this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 10, it's the day of Pentecost. Remember, the Holy Spirit is poured out. The tongues of fire were resting on the guy's heads and they began to speak in languages that were not their native tongue. And it says that there were people from all over the empire and it lists a whole bunch of nations there. Rome is included, and and not the nation of Rome, but the city of Rome is included. It says that they all understood. They marveled. They said, these are a bunch of Galileans. How is it that we understand what they're saying? That was what happened on the day of Pentecost. They were so blown away that Peter stood up in the middle of that whole Pentecost celebration, which would have drawn people from all over the empire to Jerusalem. Peter stands up, he preaches the gospel. He says, this Jesus whom you persecuted, whom you crucified. He says, that's the one that you have to do business with. And it says 3,000 people were pierced to the heart, gave their lives to Christ surrendered to Christ that day. Among them were people from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Guess what? When they went home, they took the gospel with them. That's how I believe this church was started. There was a lot of movement in the early church. God has a way of moving people around to accomplish his purposes, and that's exactly what he was doing throughout the empire back then. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, beloved of God. Now, we're going to end with verse 7 today, and we're going to start with verse 7 next week. So stay tuned. We're only going to cover a little bit of it because there's a lot here. The first thing he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Literally, what that means is God's loved ones. That's what it is to be 
called of God? Are you God's loved one? Have you experienced the love of God personally? As a Christian, and that's if you don't know him, you can know his love. A simple prayer. God, I've lived away from you. I've lived apart from you. I've lived in my own arrogance and pride and thought I had it all figured out. But you're doing something here. And I, I ask you to forgive me for my sins, to cleanse me and, and to, to bring me into your kingdom. I guarantee you, you pray that prayer, he'll do it. He will do it. And he will transform your life. Profoundly simple. Then you would be one of God's loved ones. Do you struggle with that as a Christian? With the love of God? Oh, we understand it doctrinally. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. What's for lunch? But to accept it. To let it go down. To let it permeate who you are. To understand the love of God. Yeah, it's a love that's bigger than we will ever fully comprehend. But I want all of his love that I can get. We can get caught up in seeking the approval of men instead of resting in the approval of God. To know that I am accepted in the beloved. That I am his loved one. We can also get caught up in a works-oriented expression of our faith. Not externally, if we have been educated, if we're biblically literate, we go, oh, I'm not going to get into the words. But I fall into it sometimes. Well, look at what I did, Lord. <laughs> you know, it's like, and he's like, who did? Oh, well, look at what you did. Excuse me, Lord. I don't want to take any glory for that. You know, that we fall into those things. It's part of our old nature that expresses itself. I came across an article talking about seeking the approval of men. This is an article that just came out on Thursday. You guys, some of you may be familiar with the Christian satire outlet called the Babylon Bee. <laughs> this, this cracked me up. And I went, wow, that's perfect for Sunday. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> but, This is titled, Infinitely Precious Child of Almighty God Obsessively Checks Social Media for More Likes. February 4th, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. According to sources, a local image bearer of the creator of the universe, a soul who is infinitely precious in God's sight, is really bummed out that her Instagram post only received three likes. What's wrong with me? Am I not pretty enough? Am I not funny enough? Said the human being who God had predestined to walk the earth and experience his infinite love before the foundations of the universe were formed. <laughs> this is her talking again. Farmhouse chicken mama. I know some of the, 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 the handles these people get. Farmhouse chicken mama really has her life together. She gets thousands of likes from her adoring fans on Instagram. Doesn't anyone care about me or notice me? Witnesses reported the young woman fell into a mild depression that morning in spite of the fact that she has three adoring children, a slobbering husband that ogles her every time he passes by, and a mighty God who had left his throne in heaven to shed his blood for her redemption 2,000 years ago. I just feel so unloved, she said. Galatians chapter 10, or 1, verse 10. The Apostle Paul has a warning. It's an exhortation. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant, a doulos, 
of Christ. You see here in verse 1, Paul is called as an apostle, appointed, destined, God's work, not his. Verse 6, you are the called of God. You talk about predestiny and free will. That's an easy one. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 7, he says, beloved of God, you're, you're called as saints, as holy ones. That's what that means. When Jesus says in Matthew 22, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. He is not laying out the doctrine of unconditional election. Excuse me, this isn't a Calvinist teaching and I don't believe that's what he's saying. But what he is saying is that when God invites all to participate with him in his plan for redemption, the gospel of God, he does so without partiality or favoritism. The Bible tells us this is his will that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. We know that all won't. That's a given because free will plays a part. But the essence of it is you want to know if you're called? That's easy. Choose Christ. Then you can know that you are predestined to be his. If you've not done that, do it today. Give your life to Jesus. Guarantee you on the basis of God's word, your life will never be the same. If you have perhaps been loosened up and are drifting as a believer, come back. Live the life of one of his loved ones. Be his loved person. Rest in the approval of God. He's already approved you. You don't have to work for it. It's a free gift. But by faith, the obedience of faith, we walk in it. That's the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible book, these incredible verses that you've given us. Just this morning, focusing on who you are, what you're about in each of our lives personally. Lord, I pray for each one here, each one catching us online, that you would work in our hearts, that we would freshly yield our lives to you as doulos, as bond slaves for Jesus, that we would recognize that we are not our own. We were bought with a price and that our lives would reflect that. Knowing, Lord, that it's not based on our work, it's not based on our obedience, it's not based on anything but your love, which is poured out on us, was poured out at the cross, is poured out on us daily. So thank you, God, for the work that you're doing, the work that you're yet to do. We yield ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.